Hey everyone, it's Jonathan, and welcome back to the Disney Movie Marathon. Instead of recording a brand new intro for this episode, I'm going to leave the original as it was back in 2019 fully intact, and I will probably do the same for the next few episodes, as they were all part of a mini-series I did in May of 2019, looking at Fantasia and a bunch of Fantasia-related content. I will also be leaving the original outro intact. I have switched away from doing new outros for each episode, teasing the next one, but with the Fantasia series, it is kind of important, especially for this one, as you'll see when we get there. Okay, let's get into this episode of the Disney Movie Marathon, back when it was part of iHeart Movies, or as I was calling it at the time, the iHeart Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the iHeart Podcast. My name is Jonathan North, and welcome to the first episode of a month-long celebration of one of my favorite films, probably my favorite Disney film, if not my favorite film of all time, Fantasia. May is also my birth month, and since my birthday was coming up and the next film in the Disney canon series was my favorite Disney movie, I figured why not celebrate both at once? There's actually enough Fantasia-related content out there that I had no trouble coming up with enough episodes to fill out the month. I have a long history with this movie. It, along with one of the next films in the Disney canon, Bambi, were my favorite movies as a kid. Every time I went somewhere where anyone owned either of these movies, we had to watch them. Fantasia was also the only quote-unquote kids movie that any of my grandparents owned. So when we went to visit my mom's parents, I just had to watch this with Grandpa. My Grandpa was a huge classical music buff, which is why he owned the movie. At the time, I didn't really care about the music, I just liked the dinosaurs and the Pegasus family. I actually still have that VHS tape from when I was a kid. My Grandpa died a couple years ago, and my Grandma asked if there was anything of his that I might want to have. And that was actually the only thing I really wanted. I don't even have a VCR, I just like owning that little piece of my history with Grandpa. I actually wrote a poem about it for one of my writing classes in college the semester after he died. I'm not gonna, like, read it here and get all sappy or whatever, but if you're at all curious, I'll link you to my blog post about it in the description. Also, if you'd like even more from me about Fantasia, a few years ago I wrote a massive article on the film for the Rotoscopers. I covered all the segments and even dove into the really interesting history of the film. I'll have that linked in the description as well. So anyway, as you can tell, I love Fantasia, and I've loved it for years. Far more than any normal little kid would usually love a movie that's essentially a two-hour-long classical music concert. I would probably go so far as to say that Fantasia is the main reason I love animation so much. I'm sure I'd still love animation even without having seen Fantasia, but I think Fantasia is the reason I see animation as so much more than a genre like most of the rest of the world thinks of it. Fantasia is the reason that I know animation is so much more than the boxes people usually want to put it in, whether that box is genre or a kid's movie or a cartoon or whatever. Animation is a medium, it's an art form, and to me Fantasia is just art, plain and simple. It's a mixing of artistic mediums, musical and visual, in a way that's hardly ever done and not easily emulated. Fantasia is just beautiful and I love it. However, I realize that I am an exception, and even if you're someone who feels the same way that I do about animation, you may not feel the same way I do about Fantasia, which is not surprising given my own personal history with it. Not everyone is going to feel the same way about this movie that I do, and this was made even more clear to me when I recorded this podcast episode with my cousin. Sarah does not have the history with this film that I do, so it was really interesting to get her take on it, coming from the point of view of someone who didn't grow up with it and really hadn't even watched the film in its entirety at all before we watched it for the podcast. A couple things to note before we begin. We recorded this in the middle of the night, and I didn't realize until I was editing that we were actually being kind of unnaturally quiet. Like, we could use this review as almost an ASMR video, we were so quiet. And also, 
Also, even though this is now episode 14 of the podcast, we actually recorded this review back in January, and this is actually the very first episode that we ever recorded with the specific intent of creating a podcast. Every other episode so far, aside from the ones I've made out of older YouTube videos, was recorded after this one. So even though we're now in the fourth month of the show, I still think it's rather fitting that the first episode we ever recorded was for my favorite movie. It wasn't planned, it just kind of happened, and I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, I think I've rambled on long enough, so let's get on with this episode on Walt Disney's masterpiece, Fantasia. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Disney Movie Marathon, and actually the first episode that we're recording for my new podcast. So today we're going to be talking about Fantasia which is the third Disney animated film, and actually probably my favorite, and probably my favorite film, too. I just, I love this movie so much. It has partially to do with childhood nostalgia, but it's just really gorgeous. It's an amazing film. I just, I love watching it. It's one of those things where I can watch it endlessly and not get sick of it. I don't know that Sarah feels the same way, but (laughs) it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) I did not watch this as a child. I don't have the nostalgia factor. Yeah, it's a totally different feeling than what you have. (laughs) I grew up with this as a movie that for some reason different people had that when we visited their house this is what would be put on this is the only kids kids in quotations film that my grandparents had so I would watch it over there it's like really one of the only things I actually sat down and watched with my grandpa so that's why I have the childhood nostalgia for it so I love the music, I love the animation, the animation is amazing. Just so many reasons why I love this film. So I guess the way we're going to talk about this is, since it's one of those films that have so many different parts, it's basically a bunch of short films all put together into one. We'll just start at the beginning and talk about each section as we get to it. Go on to the end and then stop. (laughs) Yes. So it opens with sort of a shot of the orchestra like tuning up and everybody getting ready to go. And it's like, it's one of those iconic Disney scenes where everybody's in silhouette. It's like if somebody shows you even just a still frame from this scene, you know what movie it's from. Um, I just, I like the beginning. I, I like that they included the musicians and everyone that's actually making the music before they do the animation stuff. I just, I don't know why, I just really like that about it. Mm. I liked that, it, what year was it made? Uh, 41, I believe it was released. I don't know when it was, I think it was what different parts were made at different times, but it was all put together in 41. I, I liked that it came out in 41, but I kind of, I think there was a little part of me that wished that I had more 40s in it, and that really wasn't the point of this. Yeah, they're all dressed up, but you don't get a lot of 40s with it. If I didn't know, then I wouldn't necessarily be able to put a year on it. It's more about the art form of the the animation and the music and everything than 
mm-hmm. really time traveling. Not that you don't time travel at all with it. You do. But it's not like watching a 1940s movie. The quality of the music really feels of the time, though. Just there's something about the way the music sounds that feels mm. I can very believe that. older. I could believe that. No scratchiness, though. I do like a little bit of scratchiness sometimes. <laughs> There probably is versions out there that have scratchiness. I think they've probably cleaned up the audio from I, I, the I versions. I don't need it from this one. You know, I can I can look up my man Fritz Chrysler for that. So, <laughs> so this opening scene segues into the first number, which is Toccata and Fugue by Bach. This one doesn't really tell a story, and they basically say that in the narration. It's just a bunch of just abstract imagery. You kind of can figure out what they're going for, but it's basically just a bunch of shapes moving in time with music. I really like how they do a lot of it, like with the clouds and the rocks, and it's not as specifically clouds and rocks and stuff, but like that's basically what it looks like, and I just think it looks cool. I think they did a really good job animating nothing to music. Like, it's not specifically anything, but it it, it goes so well with the music. I think... I liked part of that, and part of it's just like, okay, it's kind of like, I don't know, screensaver or something. <laughs> <laughs> but a really well-animated screensaver. Yes, you're all about the, oh, the artistry. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get into one of the most famous pieces, the Nutcracker Suite, which this <laughs> one is a whole bunch of different songs all together. <laughs> all of the... Are, are they... Are they naked fairies, or are they just like, yeah, all these little fairies, like, there's nothing there, but they look vaguely naked, and then they're matching them to snowflakes and plant life and water and whatever you want to have. Is this, this is the scene with the flower petals, though, isn't it? Falling down into the water? Yeah, that's, that that one's one's a little later, but yes, it's this, this number. And you said that the Silly Symphonies helped as a precorp precursor to this yeah the silly symphonies disney used as sort of a practice run like it was their testing ground for different ideas and concepts in animation like in here you have dancing mushrooms and silly symphonies you would see or in earlier disney cartoon you would see dancing mushrooms if you think about that cartoon with the trees and Mm -hmm. yeah so kids inside of every snowflake is a little vaguely naked fairy just so you know. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of this, besides the dancing mushrooms, which, I mean, everybody loves that little baby mushroom, but I really like the fish. And when I was a little kid, I always thought that the fish was Cleo from Pinocchio. <laughs> I liked the falling flower petals and the falling flowers. Mm-hmm. That might have been my favorite. I also liked the different plant life that they illustrated in. Not all of it was, like, there was at least one plant that didn't look totally textbook accurate. But I appreciate them adding all that nature into that Mm -hmm. scene. Like, okay, the the milkweed, you know. (laughs) But, you know, don't be mad, Disney, if you didn't make your milkweed pods nubbly enough in the 1941 Fantasia. (laughs) If you just want everybody to get the wrong idea of what they look like, then... (laughs) If you can't tell, Sarah loves plants. (laughs) I'm just being wondering. So that was kind of fun to 
try and pick out the plant life in that sequence. And this is something that I had never given a second thought to until I watched it with Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see. What what was that paired to? Depending on which part it was, I it might have been Dance of the Flutes, but there was also Waltz of the Flowers. And I think it might have been in both of those. I'm not sure. Mm. I can appreciate that he was bringing classical music into these mm -hmm. pieces. And was he just trying to make it more available to the public? or He was trying to basically create a whole new art form. Like his idea for Fantasia was basically to keep making it and keep releasing it. Like make new pieces and then put out a new version. Keeping some of the old and putting in new stuff. It never ended up happening, but that's what he had wanted to do. Just keep making new animated pieces with more classical music? Mm -hmm. And basically just re release a new version every few years. This was his idea of making like a whole new art form. These days, I realize we still have plenty of classical music, but it can be so overlooked and underrated, and it's such a beautiful art form, and it is food for the soul. So I can appreciate that he was latching onto different pieces and putting them out there. So from the Nutcracker Suite, we go to the other one that everyone associates with this movie, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Basically, Mickey is the reason that this one is so famous in his little wizard hat and his wizard robes. Everybody knows exactly what this is from. Even if they haven't seen the movie, they still recognize The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I realize that Fantasia is already so random and creative and all of these th pieces are different, but it seems, unless they were just trying to make it cute, it seems so... On the one hand it makes sense and on the other hand it doesn't make sense. Why Mickey in Fantasia as a Sorcerer's Apprentice? Is there a known reason for that? Was it, you know, like, oh, Mickey's famous, let's stick him in here, or... It's what was probably the, a little of that. A little bit of a draw, like there's a little Mickey in here, kids, come on. Probably a little, and I think Walt liked Mickey. Like, Mickey was his his character, he voiced Mickey. I'm sure he just really wanted an excuse to use him. I don't know for sure, but it probably gave something for kids to look forward to as well. This wasn't, <laughs> this wasn't actually one of my favorite parts as a kid, even though... I liked Mickey. It probably kind of dragged on for you as a child. Maybe a little, but like I knew that dinosaurs were coming and I wanted to get to the dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I just not a fan of sorcerers and it was just kind of like Mickey in this. Okay. <laughs> the music was pretty. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, this is a lot of people love this scene. This is yeah, it's fine. It's not really one of my favorites, but... I suppose if you were a huge Mickey fan, I could see where you would yeah. latch onto that one more, but I the best part of this is the music, other than that. I... Yeah, well, like I said, I liked this, but I wanted the dinosaurs. Of and course. The, and the next scene is the dinosaurs. We have The Bright of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. It's not all dinosaurs, and I remember being at the very beginning, like, a mildly bored. Like, nowadays, I like this scene more just because the animation is so, like, mind-blowing. I'm just watching the volcanoes and everything. It's like they animated all of this by hand. It's amazing. But 
as a kid, I was like, I want the dinosaurs, and these volcanoes are taking too long. Does it start with the volcanoes and then with their idea of early life forms? Yeah, it's basically like their idea of like prehistoric Earth and like what it was like before life, and it's very cool, very well animated. But like I said, I wanted the dinosaurs. I, you had the guy at the beginning talking about, like, terrifying beasts or something. Oh, yeah. Crawly horrors. Yeah, yeah, the I the narration kick. was very funny. I got a kick out of that. I don't think it was meant to be funny, but we found it funny. Yeah, it's just kind of um, not that ancient creatures weren't horrifying in their <laughs> own way, but, you know, blue whales... Hippos still exist. Great whites still exist, even if a lot of giant, creepy creatures have since passed away from us. <laughs> but yeah, this once we get to the dinosaurs, this is one of my absolute favorite scenes. I just I love dinosaurs, and like this is one of my favorite dinosaur movies. Even though most people don't think of Fantasia as a dinosaur movie, it still kind of is to me because of this scene. <laughs> It's just, the dinosaurs, there's so many scenes in it that are, like, so iconic to me. The little baby triceratops looking in the river, which I remember getting confused and thinking it was part of Land Before Time when I was really young. And I would watch Land Before Time and I'd be, like, waiting for the little triceratops to look into the river. I was like, where'd that scene go? And then later watching Fantasia, like, oh yeah, it's not Land Before Time. You'll take your dinosaurs where you can get them. Yes, but, yeah, I... Now, looking, I know that there's so many little inaccuracies about different things, about different ways the dinosaurs looked, or... I guess we don't even know that they're inaccuracies, because the opinions of what they looked like are always changing, but, like, the main thing that sticks out to me is the T-Rex having three fingers when they only had two, but it's just one of those things that... <laughs> uh, totally not on my radar during this scene. She picks apart how inaccurate plants are. I pick apart how inaccurate the dinosaurs are. Yeah, if the hairstyle was historically inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. No I, no, I appreciate your knowledge of dinosaurs. I'd actually... I think it would be nice to know more. I was actually doing a little googling on ancient creatures the other day because I had a nature episode that you know led me kind of into rabbit trails <laughs> they were looking the dinosaur trails it was like an ich no I don't think it was an ichthyosaur something on the British coastline that they had discovered it was a new species hmm. so it, it kind of like the um, big scary cousin of a dolphin the way it looked but I don't think that that would be an ichthyosaur but I don't know that that was the word that they used. It might have been an ichthyosaur. David Attenborough's holding up really well for 92. Let me just say that. Anyway. <laughs> now we're dinosaur trailing. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway. No, you, you know more about that. And I think it would be nice to know more than I do. But no, I was not picking apart the dino having more digits than it should. <laughs> I don't mind that much because... Like I said, this is just an artistic interpretation of different people's ideas, so I it's fine. I didn't like... Well, I think maybe I liked the volcanoes, actually, in the scene. But I didn't... The portrayal of the dinosaur lives was not my favorite thing, because 
One thing that he hadn't noticed that I kept pointing out is how much animals were stealing food from each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, the, the food's right there. What are, you, what are you trying? Anyway, I feel like it was just such, and probably purposefully, bleak portrayal mm-hmm. of the dinosaurs, the world that they lived in. Especially I, how they ended. It was a very bleak end for them. But even the world that they portrayed... I think of when dinosaurs were still in existence as a very lush, beautiful time mm-hmm. on the planet. And I wasn't getting that feeling from that. And I think that they just brought their own ideas of this bleak, killer be killed, whatever world. And I don't mind having more thoughts about dinosaurs, but I didn't agree with the way they portrayed <laughs> the atmosphere in which they lived and it was just dark and violent and ended pitifully <laughs> so. yeah i get that i still like it because it's dinosaurs but... right, right. <laughs> so from the dinosaurs we go on to intermission to a strange inclusion they call it meet the soundtrack where basically they've personified sound as this strange little character that just makes weird little noises and they've animated movements to it it's sort of like when i was a kid they had different visualizations on windows media player and it had different movements to the music and this is sort of like that except more purposefully animated instead of whatever was programmed to do to each different noise this was more artistic but just an odd inclusion i got some enjoyment out of that yeah. Seeing, because they did different instruments and what they visualized the sound looking like for different instruments. Mm-hmm. I'm on I, board with that. I remember watching this as a kid, though, and we'd gotten past the dinosaurs, and now I wanted the Pegasuses. <laughs> so I knew that the Pegasus family was coming, and I Get wanted this, this to be over with. Get out of here. <laughs> Get it out of here. I want Greek mythology. Come on. No. I take this part over the Greek mythology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this one was fine, but like I said, when I was a kid, I was kind of bored with it because I wanted to get to the next thing quicker. And maybe they weren't that worried. Maybe they figured everybody's off getting their popcorn and whatnot, mm-hmm. and they had some amusement for whoever's left behind during the intermission. That's probably why they included this, to give people a little extra time to get back. And if anybody was there, that they had something to watch, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know. So after that, then we go on to the Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven, which is where all the Greek mythology comes in. This is this was one of my favorite parts as a kid. I, I've always loved mythological creatures, and I loved Pegasuses, Pegasus, Pegasi. I don't know how you say the plural of that, but I loved the family of flying horses. The the father I think is so cool, a black horse. I think he's kind of. Creepy, the right word? I mean, black horse with flaming red eyes. I thought it was cool. I liked his wife, too. I thought she was very beautiful. Oh, she was lovely. She was lovely. And the black baby was very cute. The babies. Yeah, the the Pegasus. That's the baby Pegasus. That's one of the best parts. And you also have the little Cupids coming in. (laughs) My favorite part, never. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Some people are like, Cupid! Oh, it's like, no, that's not. 
I don't remember feeling one way or the other about that as a kid. Chubby babies with naked babies with wings <laughs> just doesn't do it for me. But baby horses with wings, yes, that, mm-hmm. that's that's cute. Yes, my favorite parts were the ones, or my favorite animals were the ones that were part horse. I loved all the horse people. Well, like, I think I kind of liked it when the, like the little baby Pegasus is nursing on its mother, and it's like. <sighs> That was, you know, that's not, that's not gross. You don't normally think about, I guess in modern society, you don't normally think about horses nursing. It's like, but it's totally a thing. And the baby was cute and the mother's so lovely. And it's just tender moment, tender moment. (laughs) After we get through with the first scene with the Pegasus family, then we move on to the centaurs who are getting ready to meet. Well, I should say we go on to the centaurettes who are getting ready to meet the centaurs. And the little naked angel babies are getting them ready. And I guess we should also mention, too, that the centaurettes were also naked at the beginning, which I don't ever remember noticing as a child. Which is really odd. I, I, he was giving me, like, nudity warning, and I skipped part of it, because I don't, I don't want to see that. It's nothing graphic, and they're, like, far away and in a waterfall and everything. Yeah, I don't even know what it looks like. He knows what it looks like, but he already knew that I wouldn't want to see it, so... But yeah, I never remembered that when I was a kid, and then I watched it as an adult. I was like, how did I not know that this was part of the movie? (laughs) Childhood innocence? Probably. I don't know. Either way, it wasn't, like, graphic or anything, and it's over quickly. Maybe your figures... Maybe you're focused on the horse part of the... That's definitely a possibility. I love the horses. I don't, I thought the concept of a centaur was so cool, because when I was a kid, I loved horses. And these people were part horse and part person. I just, I don't know, I just thought it was such a cool idea. And then, after they're all ready and they all meet their bows, then you go on to Bacchus, getting ready for a wine party. But then you have a couple more of the centaur people that are part zebra, and those were my favorite as a kid. I was always disappointed that they were such a small part of the movie. They were, like, my favorite of all the centaur people were the zebra people. Were they his servants or something? I think so. Okay. But I just thought they were so cool. Like, I already thought that the horse people were cool, and then they, like, upped the ante by making half zebra people. I just thought they were just the coolest idea ever. (laughs) Of course you would like that. Because it's a zebra. Yes. Well, I love I love African animals. Like giraffes and zebras are like two of my favorite creatures of all time. So sure, not a fan of Bacchus, Bacchus, however you pronounce his name. Just like this gluttonous, drunk guy who's very happy, but just this totally greedy character. And they take this mythology and they cutify it, and it's like <laughs> <laughs> the scene did way more for you than it did for me. I, th- I think I kind of got a kick out of Zeus. <laughs> Zapping them with lightning bolts. Oh, maybe towards the end with the one guy, I might have just sort of tossed a lightning bolt. And, mm-hmm. Or was there one guy that was messing around that wasn't supposed to even be tossing? I don't even know. Yeah, so there's this whole storm and people trying to take cover and Bacchus didn't get zapped even though he deserved it. <laughs> and, well, he had his wine party ruined and all his wine got spilt. Oh, he was drinking it off the ground. I think so. he'd had enough before <laughs> it got ruined, yeah. But then after the storm, you get the rainbows. And you have all the baby Pegasus flying through the rainbow and mm. 
drinking the rainbow juice. I I always liked this scene too because it's more Pegasus. Mm. <laughs> and then you have like everybody getting ready for bed towards the end, like the family all getting back together, and you have the different gods in the sky that I thought were cool too. The sun god with his flaming horses. I love the flaming horses, even though they were only in there for like two seconds. I thought they were very cool. Because they're horses with flames, I guess. <laughs> yes. There's just, there's so many cool mythological creatures in this that I just, I loved as a kid. This this movie is probably part of the reason I like mythological creatures. Did you like Diana? <laughs> Wasn't it Diana shooting, shooting stars arrows. Yeah. into the sky? Yeah, that was cool too. There were so many little moments that I really liked in this. I can understand why Sarah doesn't really care for it, but I grew up with this and I just really liked you it. You remember way more about it than I do. I've seen it way more than you do. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're bringing up all these points. It's like already totally slipped my mind. <laughs> so then after the pastoral symphony, we go on to the dance of the hours, which is another one of the most iconic scenes. And probably the funniest part of the movie. This, this is the hippo ballet. Which was really random and odd and one of the best things mm-hmm. in this whole movie. The ostriches were a little weird to me. <laughs> I really liked the leading hippo. Yes, Hyacinth Hippo. It's not, She's not named in the movie, but like everyone online knows her as Hyacinth Hippo. It was pretty cute. Yes, I I love these characters. They're so funny and well animated. You can tell that they did their research on the different movements and the ballet and I just I I love everything about this scene. I like that before they even start with the animated part, they explain the classical piece and what it is supposed to represent the different times of the day mm-hmm. because otherwise you wouldn't really get to the point. Mm-hmm. And they also point out that the place that they're dancing in is a real place, which I don't think I had ever noticed that before. But I thought it was really cool that they actually found a real place and used it as the setting for this ballet. Mm. It was cute. Yeah. The this... elephants were cute. The hippo was cute. Even the crocodiles were cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this it, this one's just fun. It's... I wouldn't say that this is like one of the most artistic parts, even though there was a lot of artistic detail in it. I think the main point of this scene was just to be fun, have fun, be funny. The crocodile and the hippo make kind of a cute couple. (laughs) This is kind of a lighter fare before it gets dark. Tell me about it. Because then you move on to the last scene with Night on Bald Mountain, which is another one that's like super iconic. Everybody knows Chernobog is one of the big, I don't know, players, the big faces of Fantasia. Everybody knows Chernobog. He's like the source of so many. So Everybody many... knows Chernobog. Oh, yes. Girl, Chernobog. <laughs> second to last scene on Fantasia. Yeah. He's he's the source of so many children's nightmares, <laughs> which is weird because he did not bother me at all as a child. We all I, have our things. I, I don't know why. Like, I always hear these stories about, oh, they were traumatized by this last scene with the demon on the mountain. And I'm like, I didn't think he was that scary. I thought he had cool wings. <laughs> hmm. I 
when you get up close to his face, he's... He's creepy. ugly. He's definitely ugly. He's creepier. But as an adult watching this, with as much as I went on and on about it, the 1980s, you know, Christmas Carol, he didn't bother me that much. <laughs> I mean, if you saw something like that, then sure. Uh, if I saw him in real life, I'd probably be traumatized. But as an animated character, I thought he was fine. And they, of course, are portraying evil at night. Like, this is his little reign of terror at night. Mm -hmm. And all of these creatures, like skeletons, are coming up to him. And all of these creatures, which I would be interested to know more of what those were based on. Because they seem like kind of a medieval thing that they had going on. Yeah, I was thinking watching through this last time they reminded me of creatures in like renaissance paintings because like some renaissance artists painted really grotesque creatures it just seemed like they were going for a very old vibe like Mm -hmm. old portrayal of evil did not appreciate the harpies i mean come on disney good grief um but i was that aspect was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not not traumatized by a Chernobyl. Okay, <laughs> fine. And but he's ultimately defeated in the end when you get to the last song because... Yeah, but not really. Because his reign is at night. They just had him true. closing up for the night. Which I think is quite fitting because nighttime, evil, daytime, it's... there's less evil because you have the light of day shining on things and so Mm -hmm. they're using this probably you know you could take it literally and metaphorically kind of interesting choice to bring in ave maria and like these priest dudes wandering along with lanterns very pretty animation Mm -hmm. be interesting to know more of what they were basing that scene on like is it monks in france what are we talking about here i don't even know yeah i'm not sure i i think it was supposed to be monks but like i always thought of them as nuns i don't know why really <laughs> I th- like when i was a kid i thought of them as like a troop of nuns because they're wearing the long flowing robe thing <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's just one of those things from watching The Sound of Music or something. <laughs> I must be the nuns with the lanterns making Chernamog fold up for the night. <laughs> and then what does it pan to a church or something? What happens? Or does it go over like a dawning landscape? I don't think it's a church, but it sort of invokes some religious symbolism. Like it almost looks stained glass-ish towards the end with the sun the way the sun's rays are coming through the trees and everything mm. it's supposed i think it's supposed to just incite hope and religion and mm-hmm. i'm not catholic so didn't totally relate to that but i can you know it's interesting that they're con- it's interesting that they ended on the note of evil and good and ending with you know trying to portray good triumphing at the Mm -hmm. end which of course people have different ideas of what that looks like and and maybe they wanted to end it on a very high inspiring lofty Mm -hmm. note 
This whole bit is odd. Dancing hippos and demons on mountains and snowflake <laughs> fairies and dancing mushrooms and yeah. It's a very it is a very random movie, but I think it works really well. <laughs> but again, that's like my nostalgia probably clouding me. <laughs> it's really it's something. <laughs> it's really odd. She said it. <laughs> it is a random movie, but I really like it. I I just think it's an amazing work of art. I figured that you liked the artistry and the music. I didn't know how much nostalgia factored into it. And there is a lot of artwork. I mean, so this would have taken so much work, and mm -hmm. I know that it took so much money and didn't have the success right away that he wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it took years, decades for it to make back its money. I know that he always was trying to do something big and something special, and mm -hmm. this was a big project for him. So I can appreciate some of the artistry I can appreciate a lot of the music it's just it's it's not on my radar it's like this is in my top five <laughs> you know so I guess yeah. I'm I'm the negative to his positive charge in this review <laughs> that's fine it's not for everyone that's for sure like I know you're not alone in not caring as much about it but sure sure no there are things that i can appreciate about it there are things that were definitely not for me um definitely a classical music fan and i like whimsical things i liked uh, some of the humor with the hippo scene and that was you know it'll be interesting to see what you think when we get to fantasia 2000 because there's a lot more whimsicalness see, and it's one. been and I did watch that with you and it's been years so I don't remember everything but I I wouldn't be surprised if I liked a lot in that one. A lot of people like it more. I I don't think I like the whole thing more though there are certain pieces that I like as much as oh, some of what's in the, here. That has the sky whales that yes, you love. Yes, I right. love the sky whales. So yeah. We almost we should almost review that next or something just to have it. And that's actually where we left it. We were just signing off from the podcast when my computer decided to run out of memory. But Sarah's last statement before it died got me to thinking about the sequel. My original plan for the Disney Movie Marathon was to cover each film in order of its release date, with the exception of non-canon sequels, spin-offs, and remakes, which I was tentatively planning to do alongside each film. However, for the few canon sequels that Disney has made, that would leave several years, if not decades, worth of movies between the reviews. Fantasia was released in 1940, but its sequel, Fantasia 2000, was released in 1999, or 2000, depending on which release date you want to consider as its official release. For the first couple months of the podcast, I was still planning on sticking to that idea, but I was also thinking about how to work in Disney's live-action remakes, and technically, Fantasia has one. Sort of. It also sort of but not really has two, and there's actually even another one that has been in and out of development for several years now. And even before all of Disney's live-action remake stuff started happening, there was actually a third Fantasia film in development. It was ultimately cancelled, but there were several shorts that were fully completed and released that are available to watch, if you know where to find them. 
With all that in mind, I started thinking about making this into a series of podcast reviews, and including Fantasia 2000, even though it does not technically come next in the order that I had originally conceived. Once I had enough content to make four episodes, I decided that I would make it a month-long celebration of my favorite film, and release them in May, sort of as a birthday present for myself, but it's also kind of an engineered coincidence. I could have released them in April, but I also would have released them in whatever month it ended up being, even if it had been like a year later. I just decided to go with May since we were so close, and I love the movie so much. So that's what you have to look forward to. Next week will be an episode that I teased last week. Katie Fabric joined me to talk about the first live-action remake, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which was a movie that she loved as a kid. We also discussed the sort of but not really a remake, The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which actually took more of a design inspiration from Fantasia than it did any narrative content. And we also touched briefly on the proposed live-action remake of the Night on Ball Mountain segment. The week after that, I will be joined by Rachel Wagner, and we'll be talking about the Fantasia-related shorts that Disney has released, some of which were created for a Fantasia sequel that was never completed. And then for the final episode in the series, my cousin Sarah will be joining me once more to talk about the sequel that did get made, Fantasia 2000. I'm really excited for all these reviews, so I will see you next week to talk about The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Thanks for listening. <laughs>